welcome back. This is episode 81 of Herpological Highlights. I am Ben Marshall, and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. Uh, this week, we have an episode all about a, a small, quite spherical, but I think everybody will really agree, 100% charming uh, type of frog. Yeah? Yeah, they are 100% charming. Um, uh, yeah, no, we're talking about rain frogs, uh, genus breviceps. This is actually a Patreon request again uh, from Philip Iovino. So big up and thank you to Philip. Um, mm, thank and you. His, his request was actually for an episode about the desert rain frog, breviceps macrops, uh, which is widely regarded to be one of the most cute amphibians that exist and comical as well. Famous for their hilarious body and squeaking cool, um, which they seem to make when they're threatened. But the oh, do we do we have a problem... recording that we could play right about yes now? Here it is. It's a little squeaker. <laughs> and uh, yeah, obviously hilarious, cool as you've heard there. Um, I think this is a frog which kind of gained, I guess, what you could term immediate internet. Um, what's the word? Mm, um, fame, Fandom. notoriety, notoriety, notoriety no- that's it. Yeah, because of its um, funny, squeaky little cool. And the trouble is, obviously, that prompted potentially Philip wanting an episode on this frog. But as with so many popular charismatic animals, no one's really published much about them since sort of 2011, where there was a paper on their sort of conservation and their um, distribution. So we've had to branch out. We've gone a little bit off-piste, not very far though, because we've stayed within the genus Breviceps and we found a couple of papers about frogs which are related to Breviceps macrops, despite yeah. not actually being Breviceps macrops. Well, and the thing is, a lot of the Breviceps species still have the same charm as uh, Breviceps macrops. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. The Breviceps yeah. is the important bit here, I would... I would say. Do you know a word the people use to describe breviceps, and particularly the desert rain frog, is uh, globose. Globose? Yeah, As which in just means... like a glob. <laughs> yeah, like a glob, spherical in shape, globose. It's a scientific means of describing these frogs, because they are, they've got these hilarious little legs, they're quite round. The desert rain frog itself is quite small. It's only like five centimetres long. They've got some adaptations, which are pretty cool. They've got long paddle-like hind feet, which they use to dig into the sand. And they actually have um, this see-through belly. So the belly is like You can actually see the blood vessels inside it. And they use that to absorb water through the sand where they live in the uh, Namaqua. Genius. Yeah, Namaqua land, the arid coastal desert in uh, South Africa. So they've got some cool adaptations and their legs are actually so small that they can't hop. They can only walk. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, how embarrassing. And uh, something else is just coming. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I know. You just think, sorry, mate. But they, you know, they're a fossorial species. They don't necessarily need to hop. They're spending a lot of time under sand and they love this kind of moist, sandy environment. It's a, Coastal fog belt is the area that they're known to inhabit, which is basically the area between the sea and 10 kilometers inland of the sea, where you have these like nice moist sand dunes. 
And uh, the the desert rain frog actually exists in areas with white coastal sands and more than 100 fog days per year. So you can actually kind of get a handle on their distribution by looking at where has the most fog days because fog days are frog days. Fog days are frog days. Beautiful. And they just, what, sit out and absorb that moisture, make the best use of it, and then exactly burrow back down into the the moist, cool safety of the sand. They like it in the sand. And um, they come out to look for dung. They actually specialise in wandering around looking for piles of dung. And when they find the dung, they eat the dung beetles and the moths, which are also drawn to the dung. So... I think we're painting a picture here of a very proud animal. It squeaks, it <laughs> nestles under the wet sand by day, and at night it's a dung hunter. Oh, proud, majestic, incapable of hopping. But who needs to hop when you're on the prowl you just, for dung? Exactly. You just don't need hopping. Hopping, hopping what, would just what, be the dung's a vestige. Go somewhere? Nah, you can just cruise on in. No worries. <laughs> If you're drying out a bit, just use your special back legs to dig down in the sand, bury down, and then find a nice moist patch on your tum-tum, suck up all that water. Not even thirsty now. Does sound quite convenient, to be fair. Does quite sound quite nice. Imagine just... I guess the equivalent for us would be... Um, <laughs> I can't think of an equivalent situation where I'm just sitting in a damp substrate, to be honest. Well, I mean, you do often bathe in port, and that, that would be the equivalent. <laughs> Drinking and bathing simultaneously, glorious. Do you mean the drink? Yeah, alcohol port? kills all kills all the bacteria. It's wonderful. And standard <laughs> wine doesn't work. It needs to be fortified. It's not bourgeois enough if you just use standard <laughs> wine. Um, God, that'd be so, so expensive. Yeah, that would be hideously expensive. Port is like a once a year Christmas treat. You can't go bathe in mm. it. But um, and even then, it's a cheap port, right? <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, certainly, if I'm buying it. Uh, the generic name breviceps, before we move on to the first paper, comes from Latin words brevis, meaning short, and seps, meaning head. So short head, and the specific epithet macrops for the desert rain frog breviceps macrops. We've had this one on the podcast before because of Tromerosaurus macrops. Um, it's just the Greek word meaning macro, you know, macro lens, means large, and ops, meaning eye. So breviceps macrops means short-headed, large-eyed frog. Uh, or Afrikaans people would call it milk padder, which means milk frog and refers to the pale colour of the dorsum. The bat. See, we got a couple. That's a couple of good names, descriptive, linking straight to the frog. You can see it already. Excellent. Yeah, that's what we like. So, descriptive names. Yeah, I thought as that was uh, the request, we might as well pay homage to this frog, the great and well-respected uh, breviceps macrops. Prior to delving into the kind of habits of some of its congeners. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which paper would you like to start with? I think we should start with the burrows. Mm, okay. So that paper is Skleba, Jerku and Sambera 2016 Burrow Systems of Mole Rats as Refuges for Frogs in the Miombo Woodlands of Southeast Africa, published in the Journal of Tropical Ecology. A little bit older than usual though, 2016 paper. I know we couldn't we couldn't help it. Literally, breviceps and scientific publications do not go easily together. It would it would appear. I mean, 
On the well, face of it, we've just described a frog, which is probably pretty hard to study living underground. <laughs> that's that's exactly it. Is now I mean, you get to these fossorial species, it's always going to be very difficult. And the other sort of question, uh, or the other reasons for it, how often are these species used as model species for sort of ecological questions as opposed to questions very directed at nat history stuff? And then if it's nat history stuff, then it's like, wow, there's a lot of frog species. What's going to happen? You know. Why pick that specific one? Okay, because it's awesome. It's not really. It's, it's sort of a no-brainer, but it, it there's still a lot of frogs to choose from. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, and I don't know how well it's really cool goes over on a grant application. <laughs> it, it needs to be a little bit more than that, I suppose, which is a shame. It is a shame because how do you know it's interesting unless you've looked at it in decent detail? Everything's interesting once you look, isn't it? Even, I mean, even the habits of this frog, if nothing else, it's entertaining. It hunts for dung. Come on. (laughs) We wouldn't know that if someone didn't take the time to follow their funny little walk tracks in the sand. Yeah. But that's that's completely irrelevant to what we're talking about here right this second. Mm. Because we're talking about a different species of breviceps. We're talking about breviceps, uh, mosabiceps. Bicus? Mosambicus? Yeah. Mosambicus. Breviceps Mosambicus. Mmm. Amongst its other little little friends. But you've painted the picture of a frog in a deserty, arid environment, uh, which very much needs to modify its behaviour, and in fact its itself, to get by with very little moisture. And what this paper is dealing uh, detailing is the behaviour of a couple of breviceps species, actually. There's a second breviceps species in this paper, isn't there? There's breviceps... Uh, yep. Powerai. Yeah, Powerai. Yeah. Um, that have taken it a bit... I suppose maybe you've grown tired of using their back legs all the time to dig little burrows in the sand, and are instead redirecting that energy into burrowing into the holes left behind... Or not left behind, but the the mounds as part of uh, naked mole rat uh, burrow systems. Indeed, not just mole, naked mole rats. Which I noticed that in this paper, because these authors are mammalologists, right? They are mole rat experts. So we're obviously a little bit out of our depth here in mole rat territory. So inclined to just you know take their word for things. And one of the things I noticed straight away, because I was Googling these creatures, for first, they're essentially mapping out the burrows of a few different species of mole rat. And they yeah. discovered essentially that, um, you know, frogs sometimes live in these burrows. Um, but when they referred to the naked mole rat in this paper, which is Heterocephalus glabber, they actually called it the silvery mole rat. So I wonder if there's a movement by mole rat ecologists to get away from the naked mole rat image which is maybe well, not taken that seriously. Well, which one are you talking about? Because there's also there's, they've got multiple species of mole rat here. Because they've also so got, you've got Heliophobus argentio cinereus. Argentio cinereus? Which I thought that was oh, the silvery you know, one because of the argento. You're right. You're right. Yeah. That is the silvery one. Yeah, yeah. But when I Googled. Yeah, the silvery mole rat, heterocephalus. Oh, wait a second. Maybe I'm just getting a bit confused. It's troubling. Didn't take long, did it? <laughs> <laughs> this is what mole rat is a mammal. Things, I, I get it. There's different species of them. Some of them are silvery, some of them not. I get it. 
No need to apologize. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. The, what I said just made no sense. They do mention <laughs> um, they do mention naked mole rats because there's been some um, frogs found in their burrows, but they don't. They're not part of this study. So yeah, it wasn't. It's not some attempt by mammalogists to rename the naked mole rats something else a little bit more. Uh, kosher perhaps it's actually just me getting confused and excited that maybe the naked rollback mole rat was something naked rollback <laughs> naked mole rat was something to do with this but actually <laughs> the we're naked talking about rollback this, does... we've got silvery mole rats and we've got some other types of mole rat yeah i mean yeah the other two are uh the social they know they mention whether or not they're social as well uh so you've got the social giant mole rat phacomis macauii and the ancels mole rat phacomis ancel and I mean, they they set out to map the burrows of these species, and I was quite surprised by the complexity of the burrows systems that they were creating. They're not just, you know, dig a. I mean, obviously we have a, a precedent for animals that behave like this in England. We've got badgers and rabbits, which sort of uh, construct these complex networks. Um, Rajas, Rajas. <laughs> Rajas and rabbits. <laughs> I mean, producing their sets and their and their uh, uh, whatever rabbits yeah. live in. Warrens. So the rajas, <laughs> the rajas, they live in these rolls. <laughs> the yeah, so we have these other creatures which um, live in similar sort of den type setups. But seeing the figure of the dens that these little creatures actually create, and some of them have tunnel networks, you know, over up to even one or two kilometers long if you <laughs> wait, wait kilometers yeah what yeah so it says here yeah um 16 complete burrow systems of the social ancels mole rat f anceli were uncovered in zambia and they had uh 1241 plus or minus 618 meters of tunnels per burrow system How so did that's I over miss a kilometer that? i was looking yeah. at the 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 figure and being like, oh, they're two meters deep. That's pretty impressive digging all that way down into the no, dirt. No, they got like, serious two tunnels. Like two kilometers of, of tunnels. Yeah, I do think if you were to what get a into a, a sort of serious um, argument with a mammologist and the topic of um, burrow construction came up and you were trying to make an argument for her sort of herps in general, uh, her petafauna making burrows, you'd be embarrassed, wouldn't you, really? Because for most of the time... They just enter the burrows other animals have made. Well, yeah, the only chance I reckon you've got is something that is that is pure fossorial, like some sort of strange Sicilian. Mm. But even then, I doubt that they've got quite... Because they're not burrows, so are they? They're tunnelling around. I'm not sure if that's the same thing. It's almost like the whole dirt is their world as opposed to the burrow being their world, you know? So the way I understand burrows and tunnels is kind of like the, um, the whales and dolphins analogy, uh, mm. which is yeah. all... All dolphins, all wh- what is it? All dolphins are whales, but not all whales are dolphins, or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I, it, yeah. So Newt salamander. The analogy i yeah, yeah. Then the analogy I'm making is that all uh, burrows are tunnels, but not all tunnels are burrows. Right, but either way, I think your point, the <laughs> the herpetofauna world might be lagging behind the mammal world in terms of complexity of burrow construction. I mean, we do, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you got like gopher tortoises and stuff, but I don't think that they're producing kilometres of tunnels. I thought gopher tortoises were secondary burrow users. 
after like gophers. Hence the name. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Well, let's get on to the topic at hand. Look at these burrows <laughs> on figure one. Can you believe the complexity of some of the burrows? And also, something which I never thought I'd appreciate is the variety between the three different species of mole rat and how they construct their burrows. See, I, I mean, they all I have. Thought you were just going to say, I appreciate the inclusion of a toilet in all of these burrows. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do, I do appreciate that. It's very a subterranean, isn't it? I just think the uses of a subterranean toilet would be re- taking relaxation to a whole nother level. Nothing can get you down there. <laughs> so most of them have got, they've, I think they've actually all got a food store, a nest and a toilet. And the, the variation lies in the kind of where these things are in relation to each other, but also how deep the sort of uh, tunnels of the burrow penetrate into the earth. And, um, yeah, of course, the variety of frog species which are found inside is also a key crucial difference, which is what this paper is kind of investigating. And um, yeah, I mean, I think we can probably largely forego the other species and just focus on what the breviceps are getting up to in these well, well, before subterranean we do, places. I w- honourable mention for uh, Cassina senegalensis. Yeah. Because um, these guys are not only incredibly charming... They shouldn't really be in the burrows and stuff. So this is the Senegal running frog. I looked at ve- <laughs> videos of it running, and all I saw were videos of it walking at a decent pace. Um, <laughs> so I was a little bit disappointed in the speed of this this running frog, but I'm sure that's where the name's got to be coming from. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not I'm not judging it too harshly just on the videos I found. But the point is, this frog's not meant to be fossorial. <laughs> It's it's meant to be it's meant to be a, a sort of ground dwelling frog, right? That's what they say. That's um, what they say. And they found like plus fifty of these these uh, Senegal running frogs in uh, burrow systems. They were just packed in there. They loved it, and like properly in the burrow too. Not just round the entrance. Not just sort of a few meters in. This these guys were down deeper into the burrows nearer the sort of core nearer the nest of the burrow and in pretty decent numbers suggestion is they're going in there to get get ants and things uh or cockroaches but um it's quite remarkable this idea of a non-fossorial species making full use of these burrows and in quite large numbers uh either for prey or for safety or for something else it just seems I don't know. It's just, I just, I'm, I'm amazed they have the gall to even try. I know because they say at one point in the paper that if you uh, give a mole rat something it doesn't recognise in its burrow, its immediate instinct is just chomp, chomp down and destroy it. Yeah, literally <laughs> although, just destruction. Although they do note that is that is a captive mole rat behaviour. They do say that, and we, we uh, might not captive, be able to uh, extend that. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it just depends um, whether or not that captive animal is uh, in there or for on a rampage or not. Um, I mean, I feel like I feel like if I was a mole rat and I found something unexpected in my tunnel, I'd probably give it a little nibble. But you just don't know. Um, well, and there's another there's another thing with rats and stuff. They do have very sense, you know. They they're good at sensing stuff with their teeth, aren't they? So a, a nibble, a bar, you know, a bite is a way of investigating something. I mean, they say here, a f- forceful bite, which makes me feel like that bite is a little bit beyond just 
an investigate you know an investigative nibble. Mm, yeah, but I'm not well, going to be the it, it, I'm, I'm, You won't catch me as a Senegal running frog running that risk. I would not be in a vouch- No, I wouldn't be in this borough system. Was it the Senegal Senegalese running frog? Yeah, is this the one that was wrapped in some kind of disgusting ectoplasm-like secretion when they found them in the burrows? Or was that something else? Um, there was one. Yeah, I didn't understand that sentence to be honest. Um, so I just sort of moved on because that's why I'm asking you. <laughs> What was it saying? Yeah, there was, says, something, um, there was something about cocoons, wasn't there? Yeah, it said... Uh, oh, here we go. Many annuans burrow into human soils. Several taxa have developed keratin cocoons or mucus coatings. Uh, it wasn't It wasn't uh, the Senegal running frog. It was uh, Leptopelis. Leptopelis parbocagii. Yeah. Frequently observed them in a keratinized skin cocoon. So is that like a sort of, uh, I guess, estivation type of thing where they're like, oh, it's getting a bit dry outdoors. I'm going to just hole up in this skin cocoon. I mean, it makes a lot of sense if that's because I'm presuming that, I mean, keratin's going to have a lower water loss rate than soggy skin, isn't it? So mm, Yeah. Well, regardless, some of these... Fro- they- they found it's not a surprising. A so get him yeah, out we of don't it. care. <laughs> get him out of it. I don't know. I mentioned it. Um, so yeah, found frogs in all three kinds of burrows. Seven species of frog in total. Breviceps wise, we had Breviceps mozambicus and uh, Breviceps poweri. Breviceps poweri was found in the molehills of the giant mole rat and the Ansel's mole rat, and occasionally the burrows of the giant mole rat. And Breviceps mozambicus was found in the molehills and less frequently the burrows of the silvery mole rat. So. They're in the burrows, but more commonly than not, the breviceps are being found in the um, molehills rather than the burrows themselves. And they think perhaps that might be because the molehills, I mean, have you ever stumbled across a molehill, Ben? I'm sure you have. You've maybe trodden on it with your foot and you've sensed that the ground there is uh, looser and softer and easier Mm -hmm, to work mm -hmm. than the surrounding area, right? I'm acquainted with the occasional molehill. (laughs) So I think the frogs... The suggestion is the frogs are maybe finding the same thing and there's these like nice patches of dirt where the mole rats have been leaving their excavated dirt and then frogs happen across these, get their little paddle legs from the back and they just start digging down. I can't resist. Yeah. I would also presume that a fresh molehill is more likely to have cooler earth. So they Mm. might also not just be easier, but actually potentially more beneficial if they are trying to escape heat. Or uh, even look for some additional moisture, perhaps. Yeah. And with the case of Breviceps mosambicus, they were actually noticing that when they looked in the stomachs of the frogs that they found in these molehills, they were full of ants. And the likelihood is that they were actually... Because ants aren't necessarily subterranean. Uh, obviously, they're anthills potentially are but the authors of this paper thought it was likely that the frogs were actually foraging above on the ground and then once they were full burrowing down into the molehills to just sort of chill out and take advantage of the stable temperature and nice 80% humidity. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that seems a very reasonable a reasonable uh, conclusion to draw from this, isn't it? it it's a climate stability thing more than anything. I think yeah. that makes the most sense. Yeah. There are some sort of suggestions at the end of the paper about um Maybe there's some kind of mutualism going on. The frogs maybe provide some benefit to the mole rats, possibly. Um, 
there's no sort of uh, hard evidence for this, but it's more like a sort of suggestion. Maybe the frogs are eating parasites yeah. or there might be some beneficial element of the frog's skin secretions, which do something to the inside of the burrows. I mean, yeah. Yeah, either antimicrobial or anti sort of parasite, something along those lines. It does paint a very nice picture at the end of uh, frogs acting as cleaners in a burrow system. So here you are, you've made this beautiful mole rat home for you and your mole rat family, and then you bring in this this frog, which is acting as some sort of autonomous parasite Roomba. Just chowing down and keeping your burrow clean, and in exchange, it gets to live in the wonderful, cool area and go out and forage at whenever they forage in the evening and, and night. I love that as a story, um, and I hope it's true, and I hope that that becomes confirmed with more papers about the mutual symbiosis between frogs and hideous, hideous mole rats. <laughs> but time will tell. Time will tell. But I think it's a, it's an insight, isn't it? Because you watch a YouTube video of a funny little squeaking frog and it's life is a mystery. And at least for a couple of species of this bizarre genus, one of the things they like to do is to burrow into molehills, which is a pretty entertaining facet of their ecology, really. It is. I, I do like these stories of... Uh, well, not even mutualism. It doesn't have to go that far, but them sort of use this whole ecosystem engineer of these two animals that are very very different um but making use of the same space in a non-antagonistic way (laughs) yeah no yeah absolutely and i think for someone like me a herpetologist if i were to see a picture of a mole rat and maybe if i heard that mole rats were proliferating in an area close to me i mean my immediate reaction would be revulsion anger um hate <laughs> but then when i find out that these mole rats are actually ecosystem engineers and their subterranean refuges are home to these quite endearing entertaining frogs I, my urge to kill or smash is immediately dissipated <laughs> never to return again no so i think it's cool like you say and uh, i enjoyed reading this and just enjoyed seeing all the references to like little notes and things about the behavior of mammals and kind of just becoming aware of the fact that there's an entire community of mammalologists who are also uh, as early career researchers publishing notes. But instead of it being about a snake eating a lizard, they're publishing about the way a mole, a specific mole rat just digs a specific hole. And I think that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was a, it was a nice sort of... Uh... It, it, you can barely call it multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary or whatever that because it's, <laughs> it's ecology but yeah so uh, we've been talking about our attitudes to animals let's look at the attitudes of some South African people at large to some frogs Yeah, so we have a paper published in Plus One in 2020. Um, It is by Brom, Anderson, Channing and Underhill, titled The Role of Cultural Norms in Shaping Attitudes Towards Amphibians in Cape Town, South Africa. So, I mean, mean, we've made made ourselves pretty clear. Um, We're big fans of the rain frog. 
big fans. Yeah, I am. I like them. But, you know, we recognise that tastes can differ and people might not be as keen about rain frogs or, or amphibians in general. And the authors of this paper paint a, uh, a paint a picture that connects attitudes and uh, quite... What's the right word? I mean, you were talking about, uh, or jokingly talking about, smashing rats, which, unfortunately, it's not always a joke. And so you've got this mm. connection with attitudes linking with actual action and therefore having an important uh, intersection with how we conserve species and things. And getting a grasp of what people think of these animals can help us develop ways of either educating people about the benefits of these animals, therefore less likely to to uh, destroy them, or help people live side by side with these things in a in a mutually beneficial way. Right? It's all about you need to know where people are coming from to to understand what the where the problems are coming from, if there are indeed any problems. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And the idea behind this paper was to get a handle on what people actually think about frogs. Um, they make some interesting points about frogs and frog conservation and how essentially a lot of the... Co well, I mean, when you really boil it down, um, I think you'll agree, a lot of conservation really just comes down to how much sympathy can we garner for this animal in how short of a time in terms of getting money to do the conservation stuff required. Hence... The, yes. popula the popularity of pandas and rhinos because they're really funny and cute and um there's have you ever seen the video where the baby panda goes down the slide yeah or the baby panda sneezes and scares the other panda <laughs> oh yeah the mother panda's not anticipating yeah, there's a some sneeze pretty solid gold panda content out there so based on the merit of the that panda content obviously they've been designated as an animal which gets to survive despite <laughs> uh, the Anthropocene, right? So, what I'm saying is like no, the same can be done so for frogs. Yeah, the same can be done for frogs. Um, but we have to try and. I think they draw an interesting comparison because one of the things they're saying is like, okay, the average amphibian receives 75% less funding than the average um, red listed mammal, bird, or reptile, and 90% less funding than the average listed fish, which suggests that fish are the most popular i didn't really quite understand that i've never seen like a convincing conservation strategy for a fish yeah see i think you're i think you're missing it i don't think that it's necessarily conservation when it comes to fish it is maintaining fish stocks which is right, a totally okay. different because that's that's fish as a product or a resource which yeah it's like a... often is inadequate or sort of really not right for a lot of a lot of species so i wonder mm, if it's coming it's from a, that yeah seems a little bit of a false equivalence really because but mm. i guess they're the just looking at the funding fish. the fish are getting yeah yeah but, i'm um, not sure but it's either way the point is amphibians amphibians need a bit of help they do because so many of them are threatened it's like over 40 percent of measured species and that probably doesn't represent accurately the actual threat so yeah you know amphibians are in trouble and they wanted to see right what do people actually think about frogs um and we, how does the how do their opinions towards frogs differ between frogs and how do the opinions of people differ based on um their kind of cultural heritage well i mean what should we do? Should we talk about the amount of people that liked frogs and didn't like frogs? 
Well, yeah, so general idea is to get a handle on people's attitudes towards frogs, but also with a little bit of uh, questioning to try and understand why. So they're doing a, a sort of combined interview thing, some with some, some quantitative things where it's like, uh, what do they bring? I like frogs. Frogs are okay. Frogs are gross. Frogs are scary. I have no feelings about frogs, <laughs> <laughs> which I can't. I have no strong feelings about frogs one way or another. <laughs> so they've done quite uh, targeted uh, questions. Imagine that. And frogs, frogs, you say? Oh, gosh, I haven't thought about frogs for years. <laughs> I haven't heard that name. <laughs> <laughs> but either way, it's all self, you know, it's all self-identified. It's all, uh, you know, people people just answer in either truthfully or as, as untruthfully as, as, as they want. Deceptively, I suppose. Um, I don't see why there would be any. Well, there wouldn't. I'm sure there's always there's always bias in in self-reported uh, things when it comes to questionnaires. But in the context of this questionnaire, there doesn't seem to be much scope for that compared to others when you're dealing with more sensitive questions. I agree. I think um, it's like, yeah, okay. The people might be hesitant to tell someone who's wearing a T-shirt that I says frogs. biodiversity researcher on the back, which is yeah. how they identified themselves. You could see there might be some hesitation to be like, yeah, no, I smash all the frogs that I see. Uh, right. And nothing's going right. to change that. I think actually like the relative um, sort of sense of wrongdoing from smashing a frog if you're someone who smashes frogs it's probably pretty minuscule it's not like this right. these questionnaires where they go out and ask people oh do you know anyone who's ever been involved in poaching and there's like methodologies we've briefly discussed on here before how you can get people yeah. to roll dice yeah. and then there's like a probabilistic answer that there's a probability that they'll be giving an honest answer versus a deceptive answer and you kind of account for right. that they didn't do any of that here and i think that like you say i think that's okay because i don't think any of yeah. the crimes they were discussing were probably perceived as bad in any way well, to the people and you got this thing where it's not i don't oh, well, actually i don't know if it's illegal or not so I, i'm sort of assuming it isn't but uh, it might be uh if it was then that's probably something that you should be taken into account but so you got the basic i like frogs i don't like frogs i have no strong feelings uh you got some stuff about whether they're harmful to people so that's sort of getting at the potential secretion stuff harking back to uh myths about touching frogs warts that whole whole sort of thing got a little bit about noise oh frogs are making noise they're keeping me awake or i find the sound of frog noise when it rains quite soothing things along those lines what to do when you find a frog in your house Poof. move it put it in the garden take it to a river stuff like that yeah um so they're getting at this this intersection between attitudes a little bit of behavior and then as they're, they're qualitative stuff they ask an open-ended question um a li- well semi semi-open-ended semi-structured uh, do you have any strong memories of coming into contact with frogs from your childhood? Any memories of something that uh, any memories of something that someone, a parent or teacher, told you about frogs? Do you'd like to share? So we've got this this um, opportunity for people to get a little bit more uh, descriptive and potentially, I suppose, more story story orientated. About the origins of their like or dislike of, of frogs. Um, and then finally, we have the most important question of all. They are presented with images of four frogs. 
Number one, the hero, a rain frog, breviceps, uh, gibosus. Gibosus. Right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm just laughing because it's so similar to globose. Well, exactly. And, and to describe the picture they used, there is a near perfectly spherical frog looking quite unhappy with uh, quite large dark eyes. Uh, it's quite a gloomy setting. But, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's a brain frog. It's, it's, it looks it's like looking, looking good. That frog looks like a cave troll mixed with a tennis ball. Yes. Yes. A troll ball. Yes. And then, yeah, we got some other frogs there as well. We got the reed frog, Hyperolius horstockii, and... Uh, Quite a proud pose. Yeah, that Orange frog. feet sitting on a leaf. It's quite quite elegant looking frog. One thing I noticed about that frog is it's much smaller in the image than the others as well, which I wonder if that would influence, because that one's a little bit less mm. imposing, especially if I was it afraid of frogs. Imposing. That frog yep. seems like it's further away, so maybe that wouldn't be quite so bad. Maybe that's, you know, that's probably the best picture they had. But yeah, it's... No, but this is this is an important point, because you're... Okay, it, it it's adding a sort of noise to the results, but these are the sort of things that, that do impact questionnaire results. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean... it. Yeah, I could see it influencing it. And uh, they also had the, well, they just call it a toad, Sclerophis pantherina. Uh, that's a more, I'd say that's kind of, um, it looks like a, it's quite a traditional fat froggy shape, but it's blotchy. Yeah. It's quite colourful. It's got nice blotchy, nice blotchiness, pale belly. Yeah. Quite a kind face. I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the final one is one of the... It's the kind of frog that I see and I just think, oh, that's going to be a jumper. That one's going to be jumping. The river it's, frog. It's it's very rana. Yeah. Yeah, very much Pointed so. Pointed face, big back legs. Uh, actually quite a triangular overall body. Yeah. And that is mm-hmm, Amietia. Mm-hmm. That's my best guess at that genus. Uh, Fusigula. Yeah. Or Fuscigula. It could be Fuscigula, actually, because uh, soften that middle... Uh, <laughs> syllable. Or, syllable, thank you. <laughs> Amietia Fuscigula, we'll say that. And yeah, that's the more traditional frog. So these are the four frogs that they were presented with and asked, how do you feel about these specific frogs? And it didn't go over well, did it? The old uh, rain well, frog. Well, let's, let's, start, let's start with the good news. Okay. Let's start with the good news and we'll end with the bad news. Okay, I like that. <laughs> so, good news. Uh, 69% of people responded that they liked frogs or That's... said they were okay. <laughs> <laughs> that frog, they're okay. <laughs> I don't like them. Don't get me wrong. I don't like them, but they're okay. Yeah. That's good. That's most people. That is most people liking frogs, which is, uh, you know... Yeah, that's um, kind of a pleasant surprise. Okay, yeah, I am okay with that result. Not not overjoyed, I'm okay. Uh, an extra 10% neutral. But then we got this worrying 21% negative response, either saying they are scary or gross. Now, the question was asked in a way that they separated scary and gross, because those are two uh, important distinctions. You know, it could be coming from two different uh, sources, basically. Yeah, no, yeah. I think it's important to draw the distinction between revulsion and anger. Yeah, yeah, it is. (laughs) Especially if the goal at the end of the day is to try and come up with a way of uh, convincing people uh, that frogs are fine. Mm -hmm. You don't need to be scared of them. They're not necessarily gross. No. Um, Good news is this also means that most people were willing to leave the frogs be when they came across them in, in 
in gardens and, and that sort. There were instances where people said, no, no, I wouldn't leave him alone. He's, he's, i got to pick that frog up. i got to yeah. get him out of there. Yeah. Because this perceived threat from pets, which is quite a responsible thing to do. You don't want your dog investigating a frog and getting a bit carried away and squishing, especially with a the toad. Then you've got a dog that's blooming high off toad toxins. You've got a partially squished grumpy toad. You've got bufo toxin all over the floor. Nah, scoop them up, get them out of there. Get them somewhere yeah. safe. Well, <laughs> yes and no. I partially agree with that sentiment. If you've got if you've got a toad wandering around your house, I mean, if it's on the... that toad is at risk. Thing is, though, I've seen toads which are at home on a patio. Some toads they make the best of it. If there's a patio with a hole nearby, that toad's going to be running that patio. It's going to be a big dog in the patio okay, game. But that's a, that's a distinction. That's outside of house. Oh, if the frog is in the house, it's probably made an error. Because how yeah, is that's too what dry? I'm, that's what I'm thinking. Is the toad's going to have a horrible time? Patio toads? No, I'm 100% for patio toads. Yeah. That's a strong like from me. Something I notice among people in the UK as well, who are perhaps unfamiliar with wildlife, um, they're often very excited to have something in their garden, but then their immediate reaction is like, right, I found it in the garden. It's a slow worm. I've got it in this lunchbox. Let's go and take it to some suitable habitat. And you're like, well, the suitable habitat is where you found it because that's where it chose to be. Whoa, uh, twist. Yeah, which, you know, people just don't realise that they're... And I mean, it's a point they make throughout this paper that urban environments can be good for wildlife in some ways. Mm-hmm. That's um, a, yes. Yeah, but, maybe, yeah. yeah, I think people, you know, it's it kind of all ties into our connection with nature and this preconceived notion that nature is somehow distinct from urban environments yes that's exactly it is it's this see that's that's a very nice targetable conservation goal is to overturn that idea that urban and wildlife have well by necessity have to be separate and that's sort of another bit of their survey they get into is whether you know there was what was it 80 89 of people agreed that frogs should be protected in the wild but when you're protecting them in an urban environment, things get a little bit more complicated. People are a little bit less keen yeah, initially. Yeah, people are like, wait a minute, we're conserving frogs in the city. How will this affect me? You could, you could protect them in their frog lands. Yeah. But what if we get too many frogs here? But with a little bit of, uh, you know, public open space, green spaces, it's, you know, you're still looking at low 80% of people being like, yeah, all right, we can protect them in green areas, in urban edge, as they term it. Yeah. And there was a thing they mentioned in the paper where they'd say to people like, yo, how do you feel about us protecting frogs in the city? And they were just like, yeah, I'm not sure. And they were like, well, don't worry, it's cheap and it won't really affect you. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, do it. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> yeah do it. They're, when they're talking about making uh, corridors or something, yeah. something to aid frog uh, mobility through the city, people are like, oh, hold up. Wait a minute. Hold up. Yeah. Do I mean? don't want to have to wait in traffic as the frogs cross the road because I'm telling right. you right now, I'll squish them. I'll squish them all dead. <laughs> But then, but then, you know, a little bit more context, a little bit more detail, and like, hey, you know, frogs are—they're going to be pretty chill. They're not going to get in your way. You just need that that agreement that it's okay to, you know, to to work with people, and, and it's a little bit more hope, which is good because again, it's reinforcing the ideas. Hey, well, maybe if if things are explained well, people can be brought round to seeing the the brighter side of even urban frog conservation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and. Uh... Should we talk about their attitude to specific frogs? Yeah, I think it's I think it's probably time. Well, 
need to needless to say we did warn everyone but um breviceps gibosis actually scored the most poorly it was the least likable and most likely to be described as gross or scary so it's the most gross i would would like i would like to repeat some of the quotes yeah go on so quoting from the paper the rain frog's image was most often met with dismay and exclamations of what is that and is that even a frog and is most likely to be classified as gross (laughs) we did come on come on guys (laughs) He's charming. <laughs> it is charming. It's it's comical, but it it uh, it doesn't fit in with people's preconceived notions of what a frog might be. And so, I mean, the question really should be, in retort to that, if not a frog, what would you call that? Oh, it couldn't be anything else, could it? Oh, it's some sort of some sort of painted egg. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> what else could it be? What other group of animals is there that you could slot that monstrosity into? I mean, I understand people. Yeah, they're just like it is an unfamiliar it is. shape. It doesn't look real. Unfamiliar, and uh, you're not going to come across them very frequently because they're burrowing around in the in the dirt. Yeah. So it it's one would one would think it comes from unfamiliarity with with these guys. Yeah. But they're not harmful and they're quite charming. So I feel like this this disgust response, as they call it, should be quite easily overcome. Yeah. The uh, the results for the Aram reed frog were very different. That's like the sort of archetypal poster child frog. Hyperolius horstockii. Mm. And that's the one whose picture we liked even. The regal, calm frog sitting on a leaf, very pointy, generically frog-shaped classically beautiful frog and yeah people thought it was likable and they were much more likely to leave it alone if they found it in their garden because of its beauty well this this is i suppose the other thing i'm i'm wondering whether it being on a leaf you you mentioned the leaf bit too but that's also um it's more out of the way you're not going to accidentally step on that guy now little breviceps you don't want to accidentally step on a little breviceps no just the breviceps seems like the kind of frog that you'd just be like shutting the door maybe of your bedroom to go to bed and it would be in between it'd be like there and you'd actually shut the door on it or something <laughs> you're like oh i hope not poor little guy but it is worth mentioning it is the only one that was more disliked than liked all the mm. others more likable than they were had responses for gross or scary or neutral or anything so it is quite a stark contrast for breviceps versus you know even the toad and toad and the uh the, the sort of classic rana frog nowhere near nowhere near the levels of disgust and fear yeah that breviceps can prompt and one difference in terms of the um um kind of um cultural differences perhaps that were noted was that um, a higher percentage of people um, who were speaking Kosa actually disliked frogs compared to English respondents. Um, and they were much more likely to report being phobic of frogs to the extent they were unable to look at the flashcards of examples. And it's quite interesting. It's like, okay, so where do ideas like that come from? And mm, um, This is where the qualitative stuff comes in. To let people uh, expand on it. Yeah, exactly. Um 
Yeah, and one thing that's interesting is actually that uh, Kosa people, because, you know, they're holding this belief that frogs are dangerous, and they also believe that frogs can spit a poison that causes infection in humans, and therefore you shouldn't touch them, and you've got to run away if you see them. And although frogs are widely regarded as harmless by, like, scientists and stuff, many frogs actually aren't completely harmless, and some carry a toxin, mm. as we've talked about a lot. And uh, the banded rubber frog, which is Phrynomantis bifasciatus, is actually common in the northeastern parts of South Africa. And um, in northeastern South Africa is where Kosa is widely spoken, along with Zulu. And so these frogs actually secrete an irritating toxin, which can result in rashes or vomiting if they're handled extensively. So this rumor basically that frogs can poison you doesn't come from nowhere. It's a cultural belief stemming from coexistence with a frog that actually can poison you and so obviously that is a message of quite high import um yeah don't fiddle around with frogs because you could get a bad rash and vomit and then that's quite a serious problem so yeah the, it, you know there's no smoke without fire this this kind of cultural belief that the frogs are dangerous stems from somewhere and is um much more commonly expressed by people from or people speaking that language and it adds that extra level of, of nuance you need to deal with if you're convincing people not to harm the frogs. It, it's almost like the snake bite situation where there is a there is a negative impact from these animals, but it can be mitigated in better ways other than, than killing them. Totally, yeah. So it is Yeah, it, it it's important to identify because yeah. there is a legit there is a legitimate uh you know, something going on on back there. Yeah. Yeah. Other interesting things which they mentioned. Uh, people who had, uh, well, first of all, people who liked frogs knew more about frogs. But of course, you can't really say which came first, the liking of frogs or the knowledge about frogs. So those things are intertwined. Um, and it probably goes both ways. One other thing mm-hmm. is that um, experiences of frogs earlier in life were... Uh, related to people who preferred frogs, right? So if people had their first experience of frogs at an age under five, they were more likely to like frogs than people who waited till they were over five to actually have a close encounter with one. Yeah, yeah. And there was this idea that um, basically how people how people saw teachers or parents or, you know, the, the whatever pseudo-authority figures interact with frogs has a bearing on how they feel about frogs later in life. Oh, totally. So this, again, feeds back into this idea of, you know, contrasting cultural stories about frogs or how those cultural stories uh, sort of manifest yeah. in attitudes towards frogs, you know, as, as people age. So you have this, not just formative in terms of experience, but formative in terms of people being shown or... or uh, having examples of how to react to yeah. frogs. When you're a kid, everything you experience for the first time, you're learning how to react to it, right? And you don't give anything special privilege. If you're seeing a frog for the first time and your auntie's freaking out, it's going to freak you out. One of the best things... It's I've... a pretty reasonable thing to do. Yeah, totally. <laughs> right? like, it's the same as anything else. You know, oh... Use the cues around you. You're coming yeah. across fire for the first time. Someone's like, watch out, mate, danger. Don't touch it. You take it at their word, right? <laughs> Why should frogs right. be any different? One thing I, I've I've actually one of the most impressive things I've seen actually from a, a parent or someone who has influence over a child's feelings about animals was uh, we were up at uh, the Welsh Mountain Zoo doing field work uh, trying to catch Escalapian snakes and uh, 
Yeah, me and uh, my field assistants, Devon Lauren, had caught one. And there was like a big group of people gathered around because they just sort of coincidentally walked past and seen this like furor as we had found this little snake. So we were showing this sort of group of three or four families with children, the snake. Um, some of the kids were like, oh, can I touch it? It's like, yeah, go on, quickly have a little touch. And uh, yeah, one I noticed there was this lady and she was like standing quite a distance back, like a weird distance away right she was like five six meters away when everyone else was just like you know bunching in to try and see the animal and uh afterwards i went and spoke to her and i was like oh yeah you're all right like you you uh you didn't seem that keen on the snake and she was like no like i am deathly phobic but whenever an animal i'm scared of is in the vicinity i act like i'm fine so that my children won't inherit the phobia <laughs> and i was like that's amazing so she was basically mm. standing miles away like yeah yeah go see look at that wow a snake but internally she was just freaking out which i thought was really impressive like that's some high-end yeah, parenting that's, that's, it is it is to to, to recognize that and and to take the steps to to mitigate it yeah but reading this paper just reminded me of that experience where it's like you know home-based figures in early childhood if they give you a positive experience with an animal you'll have a positive vibe about that creature you know potentially till end of days they mentioned things like collecting tadpoles um being a influential event in people's lifelong kind of enjoyment of frogs which obviously has its uh positives and negatives the old catching your tadpoles but um you know if that if people did experience that it went on to be something which was formative in their ideals about these animals so i mean there's something to be said for that yeah and it, it also turns into this reinforcing cycle sort of thing if, if you're talking about urban conservation of species where uh maybe doing i, sp- I was gonna say sort of almost less work in an urban place might get you better uh, coverage in terms of getting people to interact with animals and, and sort of getting that uh, that initial love and respect for them than, say, doing the same work in, in somewhere rural. So it does re-emphasize the potential benefits of putting energy into urban uh, conservation as well as uh, the sort of protected area rural stuff. You yeah, know? especially when you, you think that people in urban environments probably, by and large, have um, a little bit more autonomy about how they influence the landscape. Whereas I'm just thinking in terms of like gardening and things like that. People in rural areas, I don't know, you know, they might manage their gardens for wildlife. But I feel like it's so much more crucial for wildlife in urban areas that people are thinking about and providing opportunities for the animals near to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is, there is a, a benefit to effort ratio which is which is different. I I know what you're getting at. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think really at the end of the day, it it just has to be an entire societal effort to be better at this stuff. But in terms of bang for your buck, there might be some nice nice opportunities in yeah. urban environments. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Certainly, yeah. don't write them off and be like urban for people, rural for animals, because that is that is going to cause pain for everybody. Yeah, it is. Totally. It is more well mutualism where where it's. Uh, where it can be encouraged. Mm, yeah. So, concluding remark on that paper, I guess would just be, how did they conclude their own paper? Maybe that's a good place to start. How did they conclude it? They concluded it with... Positive general attitudes towards frogs are shaped by a combination of complex social forces, most notably cultural norms, and regular positive experiences of the species. Yeah, I mean... What's the message? 
um, show your kids a frog <laughs> and be like, it's pretty sweet. Yeah, just just celebrate their existence, right? <laughs> yeah. They're not gross. They're not They're gross. not scary. Enjoy them. That's my takeaway. <laughs> <laughs> Even breviceps, the Cape Rain Frog, which is undeniably a freak, still has its charm. And let's talk about a brand new species of rain frog, shall we? From the family Brevisipididae. Fresh rain frog. Yeah, yeah. so um, this is by Nielsen, Conradi, Keriako, Bauer, Heineke, Stanley and Blackburn, 2020. So pretty fresh. A new species of rain frog endemic to Angola, published in Zoo Keys. Oh boy, what a frog. What a frog. So... Yeah, the kind of taxonomic picture for breviceps is changing a lot. Uh, we don't know that much about it because there's not been great sampling. I mean, Angola had a bloody civil war up until recently. It's not an easy place to go and collect frogs. People had other things on their minds, but increasingly breviceps is kind of entering the public domain. There's been six species described since 2003, so it's on the up and up. And uh, yeah, this one coming from Angola is... Uh, a wonderful little creature, I think you'll agree. Stunning. We've got a highly variable uh, little breviceps. Um, oh, gosh, I don't even have to... Su- what is the size? Measurements shown in Table 3. Okay, <laughs> You're the size table guy. Three? <laughs> you Where- tell me. I can't find Table 3. SVL of ooh, 26 millimetres. Tiny absolutely minuscule wow it's much smaller than it looks in the pictures these macro lenses these days eh they're stunning they are stunning so we have a tiny little breviceps they can come in a beautiful uh, light stony grey all the way down to a very very dark rich uh, well I suppose grey but also with accents of red and then in the middle we can get like a, a sun dried tomato looking color. Yeah. Mm hmm. Bellies tend to be quite pale in most of these morphs, but I think the real charm comes from their grumpy little face paint that yeah. they have. Yeah. They so got they've got dark mask. around the eyes. Yeah, dark around the eyes going back, a very pale uh, muzzle area. Um, I suppose it, it's, it's almost. The one at the top right almost looks like it has a giant soul patch. Oh, yeah, of just black markings. Yeah. Yeah. Exceptionally charming. Yeah. Uh, beautiful golden eyes. Globose. Exceedingly globose. Yeah. Stubby little face. Tiny little feet. I mean, yeah. really, shape-wise, classic breviceps. Classic. The description of the holotype describes adult male with globular body and well-developed short limbs. <laughs> <laughs> Well-developed limbs. Yeah, they're developed nicely, but oh boy, they're short. Yeah, um, wonderful variation in colour. Exceedingly charming. Really quite a, quite a wonderful little creature. And they've called it Breviceps Ombelanonga. Ombelanonga. Breviceps Ombelanonga. And the name Ombelanonga is a derived combination, Ben, of two words in Umbundu, a native Angolan language. One is rain which is Ombela, and frog is Anonga. So the species epithet just basically means 
Rainfrog. Which is wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So it's Breviceps on Bellanonga, aka Breviceps Rainfrog. And yeah, frogs began cooling during the daytime following heavy rains. They stopped after sunset, so they only cool during the day. And they like cooling from leaf litter in dense Miombo woodland, which is this kind of savannery woodland that we've been mm. talking about elsewhere. And the cool is described as a short whistle. Now, do we have access to the cool? I am unaware of having any access to the cool. This is a Zuki's paper, so supplementary material is ooh, table S1. I've got waveforms, but I just don't like waveforms. I can't read sounds. Oh, oh supplementary material. Here we go. Is it going to be another supplementary material gripes episode? Or I is it- have a feeling it's going to be uh, morphological data used to p- perform PCAs. That's who there is. Oh. oh well it'll have to remain a mystery guys please publish the call we want to hear it <laughs> we need our audiovisual entertainment the call the word cool appears 66 times in the paper yeah it doesn't mention anywhere in the paper that you can listen to the call hey bright news bright side silver lining whatever let's hear it um it seems to have be quite widely distributed and exists in multiple national parks so they're suggesting it's it's only going to be least concern that is so refreshing which is yeah refreshing is the right word yeah so often these new species being described these these uh you know these new formal descriptions are of species that are especially endemic or micro endemic and have limited ranges and therefore are quite vulnerable this is a nice exception to that trend. Yeah, totally. Really refreshing to see that. Apparently it gets eaten by two different types of snake too. Well, good. <laughs> good. What are they? Uh, Cladirostratus acutus and Corsus bilinearis. Cool. Okay. <laughs> Don't know what either of those are, but uh, Corsus, what, one's, one's, one's a, a viper. I like Immediately vipers. intrigued. Yeah, I am. Ooh, oh. Uh, the night adder. Oh, it's a night adder. Okay. One there of those, that, they'd take a little breviceps. One of those vipers that doesn't look like a viper. But yeah, a little bit of morphometrics, a little bit of DNA, bit on the natural history, and uh, we have a, a nicely new described breviceps. Yeah, nice one. Have you got any other business? I do. I, I have a mystery frog call for you. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Uh, got this off my dad. Uh, from Japan, this is. I don't know what type of frog it is, and I'm wondering. I'm 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 putting putting it to the listeners. Well, let's frog see if I, challenge. Let's see if I know it first, shall we? Yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah. Roll the tape. I feel like we're hearing multiple species here, right? This this is a this is a chorus. Yeah, surely. that is a cacophony, um, mm. which is you know obviously making it hard to get a definite ID. Uh, yeah, about the ID, uh, I got absolutely no idea. Obviously, <laughs> well, 
We'll see what people say. Tell you what I'm going to do. It's a challenge, I feel. I it's feel from like J- it's, it's harder than usual. It's from Japan, yeah? Yeah. I'm just going to Google fr- common frogs of Japan and see if I can, based on the images I see, pick out the oh. one that made that sound. Oh. Oh, there's lots. <laughs> My guess is going to be a species from the Fedger Varia genus. The what genus? The Fedger Fedger Varia. They're the sort of. Uh, I think they're like. A, oh, I don't want to say too much because I'll say something stupid. But they're like rice fieldy type frogs. Ah. Uh. Fedger Varia limnocaris. That's my guess. Because they're widely distributed. Uh, oh, yes. I, I, I see what you're going for. It actually doesn't say it lives in Japan in this bit. It's listed in the Frogs of Japan, though. So I'm assuming it is there. Oh, yeah. I see you. We're looking at quite a flat species, quite classically triangular in shape, but uh, hmm. associated. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, total guess. We'll, whichever, we'll way you, whichever way you look at it, it's a total guess. Yeah, but I'd be interested, though. You know, the community came through on the uh, crickets that weren't even a frog. So let's see if they can do it again. Yeah, that was, that was a trick question. That was that a trick. Was, that was, was impressive. Unintentional trick question. I've also got some many other business. Uh, we have a brand new Patreon. So thank you very much, Hedrigal. Thank you. Mucho abrigado. And uh, we will be covering your topic, which I won't divulge yet, but we will be covering it in a future episode. So, yeah, uh, I haven't got anything else to mention. Have you? No, no. Cool. I think that's I think that's everything. Well, there we go. Breviceps, rain frogs, a bunch of uh, globular freaks, but um, very endearing creatures and willing to go in burrows. <laughs> <laughs> Helping out the mole rats. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, um, all that remains to be said is if you want to get in touch with us, you can highlights at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook and Twitter. And yeah, that's it, I think. Thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you for listening. and frogs are interesting, harmless, and very useful because of the number of insects they eat. Their many different sounds are a part of the mystery and beauty of rivers, streams, lakes, ponds, and swamps and forests.